Part Seven, Section Three of the Trial of Callista Blake. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Roger Moline. The Trial of Callista Blake by Edgar Pangborn. Part Seven, Section Three. Callista thought, "I am stronger than she is, and never knew it before." why is she crying after she was so wonderful it was no trick of vision no mistaking the intrusive brilliant glitter on her cheeks as edith stepped down and walked rather clumsily but head high toward her seat she would not retire in any sniffling droop rather callista knew she would be furious at the weakness and maybe not reach for a handkerchief even when she was clear of the arena but keep her head high and angrily observant let the sparkle dry on her face and stay there the hell with it but i am much stronger i can hold up too even better i won't let hunter hunter trick me into saying anything he can use i'll play the act to the limit for cecil for edith for myself and isn't it time now yes it was time cecil was whispering to her watching edith still ready with a smile if edith would only look her way callista lost his words and had to ask him to repeat i'm putting you on now feeling all right cal steady i'm fine bud steady let em all come it occurred to her that she really did feel in excellent condition this was the end of the long affliction of waiting mute listening anticipation now at least she could attempt to do something cecil rose and moved away he was up there near the witness stand calling her name smiling a little himself not like my father it is time first to mr delahanty which is the clerk at close range mr delahanty's eyes appeared curiously vacant she found a moment's fantastic pleasure in proposing to herself that the poor guy might actually have died long ago leaving a fruity voice a magnificent suit of clothes and some structure partly plastic designed to hold the two together world without end the arm mechanism must be especially clever to carry on that bible routine she held her hands at her sides and before the melodious rumble a concealed recording could start she spoke quickly as she had rehearsed herself last night while matron kowalski was playing the usual games with that light bulb in the corridor i affirm that i will tell the truth the whole truth so far as i know it and nothing but the truth at the corner of her eye she glimpsed cecil's stricken look and thought oh yes yes i should have warned him her thought continued with an irritation which love somehow magnified instead of diminishing what's the matter anyhow must we be so timid they're not going to condemn me for such a thing as that are they mr delahanty made an indeterminate fog-bound noise judge mann said evenly the oath is binding in that form should there be a question in anyone's mind the witness is exercising a constitutional privilege which ought to be familiar to everyone she felt he would have liked to speak to her directly humanly instead he turned to the still faintly resonating delahanty and remarked in a casual undertone too low for the jury's hearing but not for hers you might be interested to know mr delahanty that i chose to affirm when i took the oath as a justice you were not actually speaking to that which is the clerk i heard and i'm grateful you may take the stand now miss blake they were trying to help her cecil edith now judge mann 
who as cecil said had tried all along to give her every break tried too much for his own good maybe and hers too she understood that he not only desired to help her he saw her her mind grew dizzy shifted retreated sought to steady itself reason and unreason quarreling within were they the three of them treating her as they might treat a difficult child she fought down the illogical resentment despising it conquering it almost she was seated the ungainly witness chair still warm from edith's body how different the courtroom looked from up here a whole new orientation just look for instance at that big slob in the back row smuggling a candy bar up to the pink slot in his shiny face had that operation been going on since monday morning look daddy is he supposed to eat in here daddy is he supposed to huh daddy the jury too where's jimmy the jury was closer much closer she could smell them one of the females gave off a powerful tuberose reek variable as draughts in the large room stirred it about where's jimmy if it matters callista decided the smell was generated by the Ligovsky, probably in heat any minute now well emerson lake was the biggest but pretty old maybe one of the more vigorous younger males callista please stand near me always you're a resident of winchester aren't you yes sir twenty-one covent street you've kept that apartment oh yes edith nolan is taking care of it for me ought to be back there in a few days how do you do it cecil that casualness you're hurting inside worse than i am i feel fine you were attentive to all of miss nolan's testimony weren't you yes i was mr warner before we go on to other things is there anything in that testimony that you want to comment on or add to maybe you told me give them modesty every one of them knows cal that you're in their power think what that does to twelve human egos and show them the respect they believe they deserve in fact don't just show it try to make yourself feel it i will give them modesty cecil i think she overrated me as an artist mr warner it's her honest view i know but i'm not that good who knows for sure maybe i am well as you know i set a very high value in your work myself his quick relaxed smile was including the jury somehow wish i could do that or some of the jury his glance had been directed she thought toward the crinkle-faced middle-aged lady name butler miss helen butler callista ventured to meet the woman's eyes did so and was frightened to realize that for the instant's duration she was not certain what her own facial muscles were doing what did i actually do make a face surely there had been a gleam like friendliness in helen butler just as surely the woman was now looking down at her hands and away across the room troubled but otherwise communicating nothing at all however callista i was thinking chiefly of other things miss nolan said for instance her belief that you might have been experiencing a serious depression perhaps suicidal last july and part of august was she right callista were you at that time or any part of that time actually contemplating doing away with yourself yes i yes i was 
"'It was a definite intention, my dear?' "'For a while, yes. It wasn't so until I happened to see those plants in my mother's garden. Maybe not too definite even then. I only thought this would be one way.' Then I was thinking, why not take a few, have them on hand if things got worse? Then I was actually taking them, breaking off the tops and shoving them away in the tall grass, keeping the roots. But I presume you must have been working up to that state of mind for quite a while? Yes, I had been. It was like a progressive illness. Well, I suppose that's what it really is. Each day a little emptier than the one before, a little harder to care about anything. You made that infusion of the roots in brandy? Yes, the next day. Do you recall the circumstances, what part of the day it was, say? It was evening after I'd stopped trying to write that letter, the one I didn't finish, didn't mail. You gave up entirely on that letter, didn't you? I mean, you decided it couldn't do any good? Oh, that's true. I was imagining communication when, when in the nature of things there just couldn't be any. Jimmy, Jim Doherty, and I never really never saw each other, never heard. Callista, I'm not sure the jury. It's a difficult thing to express. I know, Mr. Warner, and I'm doing it badly. Well, sometimes a person can get rid of the self-preoccupation long enough to really know someone else, without illusion or pretense. It's like that with Edith Nolan and me. We communicate. But with Jimmy, with Jim Doherty and me, it was all illusion, on both sides. And I gave up on that letter because I realized rather suddenly that I was talking to someone who wasn't there. And he isn't here in the courtroom. He is. It doesn't matter. You asked something else. Oh, about the monkshood. Yes, I made the infusion that night, and then pushed it away to the back of the shelf. I don't know how to tell this either, Mr. Warner. There's a fascination about an ugly and foolish thing like that. I don't understand it. It takes hold of you in spite of yourself. I remember I almost poured out a drink from it that night, simply from a sort of curiosity, and then I thought, this is going to sound idiotic. Never mind, just tell it as it comes to you. Well, I thought, look, Callista, if you can be interested and curious about a miserable thing like this, maybe you could be interested in better things. After a while, if not now. So don't drink it. And I didn't, of course. I just pushed it to the back of the shelf, and... Oh, I read that evening, I think. Some book or other. It didn't hold me. I wasn't quite alive, but it was something to do. That Saturday evening, after the picnic, was probably the time I came nearest to actually drinking the stuff. I see. A week later, Callista, I mean Sunday, August 16th, did you telephone to Ann Doherty? Yes, early in the afternoon. You wanted to reach her and not Jim, is that right? Yes. If Jimmy had answered the phone, I don't know. I suppose everything would be different, wouldn't it? I wasn't prepared to talk to him then. Maybe I'd have hung up without speaking. Anyway, Anne did answer, and I asked her over. Did you say why you wanted to see her? No, I hadn't quite braced myself up to telling her the situation. I kept it to small talk on the phone. She sounded very friendly. Well, she always did. She happened to mention that Jimmy had gone to New York for overnight, and that's when I asked if she'd come over. 
said I wanted to talk to her about something. I don't suppose I made it sound important. As I say, I hadn't fully made up my mind about telling her anything. Were you in a different mood that day, Callista? Very different. Some other things, not to do with Jimmy or with Anne, had been sort of cleaned up for me the night before. As she spoke, Callista was meeting her mother's gaze across the courtroom for the first time that day. Her words had no visible effect on the fixed pose of sad quiet, the dignity of the rejected mother deeply wronged. Callista deduced that the face of the mother was saying, "'You see how it is. I, her mother, am not even allowed to testify.' I'm not sure, Mr. Warner, if it's what you call relevant. Well, Callista, your mood, your state of mind at that time, is certainly relevant in the ordinary sense. Legally, the question of relevance gets difficult when we're dealing with subjective matters. If I correctly understand the rulings during previous testimony, the court is taking a generous and realistic attitude on this question. The nature of the case demands it, since, as I said in my opening words, we are not contesting most of the circumstantial evidence. Subject to correction by the court, Callista, I'll leave it to you whether you think that a mention of what happened the night before would help the jury understand your situation. If you feel it would, go ahead and tell it, and we can check you if it seems to be going too far afield. I think it might help to explain things, but I'll leave out the details. They don't matter. By the way, Mrs. Chalmers, I'm your daughter, remember? They tell me I'm on trial for murder. It had to do with my relation to my mother, Mr. Warner. There had been some tensions between us for quite a while, and that Saturday evening, it was the 15th, wasn't it? Yes. We sort of cleared it up, in a way. Mrs. Chalmers, Mrs. Herbert Chalmers, I am about to smile at you, toward you anyway. Will it make any difference? You remember, sir, Miss Welch testified about my going out to Shanesville that Saturday evening, and how bad-mannered I was, and I don't doubt I was, too. I can be pretty stupid. Call it a one-track mind. Though it's a fact, I just didn't know Ann Doherty was there on the porch until Miss Welch testified to it. She must have been back in the shadows, I suppose and I was thinking so hard about what I wanted to talk over with my mother that I didn't hear her speak. Callista felt her lips curve. It was surely a smile. She meant it for a smile. I guess I was in a fog. Yes, fog, as inexorably as deepening fog, the realization came over Callista that Mrs. Victoria Johnson Blake Chalmers was quite simply not listening, present in the courtroom, knowing at least as well as most of the other spectators the general story of what was going on down here in the arena, but not listening. Mrs. Chalmers was maintaining a face, a very necessary thing to do. She would have been perfectly willing to smile back, Callista guessed, if she could have divided her attention listened just enough to understand that it might be appropriate, right now, for the face to smile. So I went indoors to see my mother, and we talked. Fog. Words pushed into fog move sluggishly, as if through pain. Miss Welch also testified to overhearing a few things. Was that testimony accurate, Callista? Oh, reasonably, so far as Miss Welsh knew, I'm sure. Mother was crying a little at one time, and I guess I did quote something or other from Shakespeare. I was sort of making a fool of myself. 
ten minutes from now mother will it dawn on you what i said you see i haven't a notion what i'll be saying ten minutes from now by the way mamma i don't see cousin maud is she home with the plum jam what miss welsh didn't hear couldn't very well know mr warner was that at the end we did get things sort of cleared up all right stranger no smile just sad maternal forgiveness one of callie's little emotional upsets you know children are so difficult and here's why i thought it might not be out of place to mention it that evening that's when the suicidal depression left me i wanted to live again after i'd said good night to mother mama darling why don't you lean over the rail ask that fat guy at the press table the bald one who looks intelligent i think he'll tell you this is a murder trial they're trying the funny-looking broad with the gimp leg it left you suddenly callista the depression like the end of a sickness yes cecil i love you yes it was very much like that mr warner like coming out of a fever or pain all at once ending there was too much upswing also i guess you might call it i was back with some of my illusions i mean the illusions about jimmy i'd once more talked myself into imagining there might be you know a separation what i'd been trying to write jimmy about in that letter i never mailed most of the day and even while i was talking with ann on the phone i was able to fool myself with that self-deception it's like walking a tightrope i guess so long as you don't look down at the fact of the ground a long way below you can truly believe there's no danger you're just walking i think that all that day until ann came i was living inside of that illusion wanting something so much i couldn't see how ridiculous it was to expect it look mother i know i hurt you plenty of times i was always nasty and hellishly difficult until i escaped from shanesville and from you but i never hurt you that much i think now callista you might go ahead and tell in your own way everything that happened that sunday evening and night i realize you'll be mostly repeating what you told mr lamson last august but i believe the jury wants to hear it direct from you so so just go ahead my dear take your time try to remember everything important don't be scared cecil yes i know this is it ann came to my apartment about quarter to eight mr warner i can't bring back the early part of the conversation too well except i know it was nothing important just usual comments on the weather i guess it was a very hot evening sticky hot her suit the powder blue it was summer weight of course but i remember it looked sort of warm i think i asked something silly about how could she stand wearing even the jacket in such weather and mr warner do i understand it right that i shouldn't repeat any of the things she said it seems reasonable that i shouldn't after all ann's not here to set me right if i misquoted her that's how it is callista i'm sure you understand it just tell your own side of it what you did what you observed what happened yes i'll try there was that small talk for ten minutes or so and then i was going ahead very clumsily i guess telling her about jimmy and me oh wait one thing i remember that at the start when she'd just arrived i was going to offer her a drink and i didn't because i had a sort of half memory that she didn't take alcohol 
a mistaken memory likely had her tastes confused with someone else's but i know that was in my mind that's why i didn't offer her one cecil i just invented this is it any damn good apparently he was not displeased you didn't offer her a drink then or any time is that right that's right you see i Anne doherty and i were never really very well acquainted i knew the dohertys as neighbors of course from the time they moved in there but my mother and stepfather saw much more of them than i ever did i can't say i really knew jimmy either i cecil please give me a lift with this one well i said something like that before didn't i the episode with him was really no more than that an episode midsummer madness i must have been ready to go overboard for someone it was chance we happened to meet that may day handkerchief back in the sleeve girl let the palms stay wet wouldn't look good to be wiping them and things got out of control so far as the affair is concerned mr warner if there's any question of blame or responsibility i'll take it nothing could have started if i hadn't allowed it and jimmy well i can't speak for him but i know he didn't realize until much later how terribly important i'd let it become to me for a while he just slipped but i went all the way over head over heels for a while and nobody to blame but myself give me that look won't you the cecil warner special tell me i'm doing all right then later when he did understand how i was making such a thing of it well poor jimmy he's not an unkind person and never would be he was in a spot i think he couldn't bear to hurt ann or me either and couldn't do anything at all without hurting one of us i don't know what he could possibly have done except what he did break off the relation and let time take care of it did the jury see him go i didn't here at the start of the day that i know do i need to say any more about this mr warner i don't think so you're free to of course if anything else occurs to you later do you want to get back to the sunday evening now yes mother's gone too behind the face but that happened a long time ago and cousin maud with the plum jam i hope what's the matter you nice people isn't the monkshood girl putting on a good show herb shall i protect the voice at you herb where was i you'd spoken of starting to tell ann doherty about it yes i tried to do it reasonably but i think all i did was blurt one hint after another until she understood she did i know that is she understood what had been happening as i think i told mr lamson i didn't get as far as telling her i was pregnant i got the other fact said somehow or other and she said something that showed she understood and then i was suddenly sick to my stomach she didn't appear angry no mr warner i believe i believe what i said could have been taken to mean that the thing was completely ended of course i've no way of knowing if that's what she thought she wasn't angry and then my sickness coming like that confused everything else i ran for the bathroom i know ann was sorry for me trying to help i was call it hysterical i yelled at her couldn't stand the idea of her touching me while i was sick only wanted her to go away but she wouldn't so i ran from her again into my bedroom and i locked the door help me now yes i know i locked the door 
That part is a perfectly clear memory, Callista? The physical act of turning the key, or throwing the latch, or whatever it was? Yes, old-fashioned key. Why, I probably never had used it before, no occasion to. But I did then. I threw myself down on the bed. My throat was still raw and sour from vomiting, I remember that. Now you told Mr. Lamson that there's a stretch of a few minutes in the bedroom that won't quite come back. I take it for granted that since then you've been trying to fill in that gap in memory. Suppose I put it this way, Callista. Is it possible now for you to add anything to what you told Mr. Lamson that day in his office? Not quite a direct lie required. Thanks, friend. Not that it matters, direct or indirect. The letter killeth. Inner Puritan. Drop dead. Drop dead. No, Mr. Warner, as you say, I've tried ever since to clear up that part in my mind. But I can't add anything now. I don't dare look toward a certain flinty intelligent face. The name is Francis Fielding. And yet I'll do it. He was very quiet, Mr. Fielding, alert, interested. No change or wavering on his smart bird-like eyes as she met their probing and tried briefly, unavailingly, to win a glimpse of the self behind them. Once I watched a heron in my famous field glasses, motionless at the edge of a stream. Motionless, hunting motionless. That had been only the summer before last, a trip alone in the Volks to the hill country. More of the day came back, a good day and the summer hush. Eighteen. The heron had remained a somber painted image until the frog returned to the bank. Then he got his meal. Too large a frog to swallow whole, so he knocked it to pieces against a rock and resumed his stillness. But Cecil was speaking. I'll make a suggestion, Callista, a sort of hypothetical question, though I won't try to phrase it in precisely that form. Before you broke away and went into your bedroom, you'd been, as you say, hysterical, sick, nauseated. Too early for ordinary morning sickness, I suppose, but the pregnancy must have had at least some influence on your condition. And you had undergone, were still undergoing, an intense emotional strain. The anticipation, the build-up to your interview with Mrs. Doherty, then sudden realization that it was wasted effort, now i suggest that all those things coming together at once might have produced a plain old-fashioned fainting spell a blackout from exhaustion and i'll ask is everything you remember about those moments consistent with that it makes sense to you that this could be what happened again the aid and comfort of the idiot puritan don't know why it should help to avoid the phrasing of a direct lie, superstition. Somehow it does, though, and he knows it. My love is wiser than other men. Yes, it could have been like that, Mr. Warner. A half-seen glimpse of something kind in black-haired Dolores Acevedo might mean feminine sympathy, fellow feeling, or something else, or nothing at all. The experts say, Callista remembered, that a person with an obsessive notion never actually performs the fantastic act he imagines performing, like, for instance, leaning forward in his chair and saying, Dolly, I bet you know how it feels to go nuts for a good lay. After going into the bedroom, what is the next thing that you remember positively? The next thing. The next thing I am really certain about is hearing Anne walk across the living room, her high heels, to the front door. I heard the door close, heard her car start up and drive away. It somehow released me. I can't think of a better word. 
I unlocked the bedroom, came out, got myself a drink of water. I went into the kitchenette to get that instead of the bathroom. Then, not right away but very soon, I saw the brandy bottle had been pulled forward on the shelf, and there was a glass with a few drops in the bottom, and I knew what must have happened. It brought me out of my fog, anyway. I knew I had to get to her at once if I could, and I wasn't able to think beyond that. What I ought to have done, I know it now, was call the police and tell them the emergency. They might have got to her in time and done something for her. But I was shocked silly. I couldn't think of anything except going after her myself, and that's what I did, tried to do. Well, you didn't lose any time, I'm sure. No, just grabbed my handbag off the living room table and ran down to the garage. It's back of the apartment. Overhead door always sticks. I remember I had to struggle with it as usual, but it didn't hold me up long. Nice old M. Lake. You had such a time yearning after my friend's mammaries. How'll these do? Not big, but I bet anything you've seen worse. Drool, old boy, drool all you like if it makes a difference. Will I twitch my jacket back a little? Better, huh? Besides, away up there, sixty-five or whatever it is, doesn't it seem too bad to die at nineteen? Can you judge about what time elapsed from hearing Anne's car start to getting your own out on the road? It could have been as much as ten minutes. Until I saw that brandy bottle, I was just dazed and stupid, not hurrying about anything. I don't know how long I was, coming out of the bedroom, getting that drink of water. I didn't look at the clock or anything, no reason to. To be sure. Well, you drove on out to Shanesville? Yes, fast as I could. Wasn't delayed on the road. I pulled into the Doherty's driveway, alongside the Pontiac. It was just as Sergeant Shields described it. The house was dark. My headlights picked up her handbag lying in the path, so I knew at once she must have gone that way. Did you take the flashlight from your car? No, didn't think of it till I'd started down the path. The moon was hazed over, but still pretty strong light. The monkshood girl will now look at the foreman of the jury. I supposed she must have gone to my mother's house, but when I came to that spur path I thought... Peter Anson would not look at her. She was certain he had been doing so, and intently, the instant before her own eyes shifted. "'Take your time, Callista. By the way, would you like a sip of water?' "'Yes, please. Thank you.' "'Thank you for more than that.' The water was cool and perfect. She held and turned the crystal of the glass until it gave her the excellent diminished star of the ceiling chandelier. Had it been burning all day? She couldn't remember. Probably. A gray series of hours this Thursday, with a whimpering of December wind. "'I'm sorry, Cecil. I know I'm stumbling, not doing very well. Keep thinking about twenty to life.' It wouldn't let me come to you. When I came to the spur path, it was, oh, just a sort of sick feeling that I ought to look at the pond and make sure she hadn't. It was only a few steps, the light fairly good through the trees. I saw something in the water. It was white, some part of her white blouse. You went down that steep path to your left, Callista? Stood on the path first, and then over on the left side of the pond? Yes, I could see enough to know. Then the pains began. I knew she was dead, and I knew what was happening to me. I guess I said, didn't I, 
that I'd wanted the baby, I wanted to bear it? Did I say that? Yes, my dear, you told Mr. Lamson that. I believe it's not been mentioned here until now. You really did want it, didn't you? Yes. You needn't say any more about that now, unless you wish. All right. I, well, I don't quite remember getting back to my car. I did it, though, and when I reached the junction, I remembered that thick second-growth woods across the road from my mother's house. So I parked by the pines, got over there. Don't do it, Mrs. Kleinman. Mr. Fielding wouldn't like it. Anyway, crying is just the glands going into an uproar. I'm not crying, see? Of course, if it means you don't want to burn me. About that also, Callista. You needn't say any more than you want to. The fact of the miscarriage is enough, and I haven't heard the prosecution contesting it. Did you happen to have your wristwatch on, by the way? No, the sticky hot weather. It was chafing my wrist. I'd taken it off at my apartment. Well, when it was over, I got back to my car, made the turn in my mother's driveway. Sorry, Herb, manner of speaking. She's a very important lady, you know how tis. And I guess that was the way Miss Welsh described it. Do you recall seeing Dr. Chalmers on the porch, turning on the light? I think so. I was clumsy with the gears, backing and turning. Then I held up all right till I got home. And then? I found I'd left the apartment door open. I remember closing it and leaning back against it. Then I was on my knees. I don't mean I fainted. I don't think I did. I think, does this sound possible? I think I just fell asleep. Remember being on my knees, dropping forward on my hands, thinking how soft the rug would be if I could hitch over to it, and I must have done so, because when I came out of it, it seemed like a sleep, I was there on the rug with my handbag for a pillow. After I got up, I couldn't stop shaking for a long while. I wanted a shower, but couldn't make my fingers take hold of my clothes. The shoes were the worst. I did, finally, had the shower, too, I think, and dozed off again. I didn't see the sun come up. It was in my eyes when I woke. By ten o'clock I'd pulled myself together somehow, got dressed. I called Edith. I knew I'd have to call the police. You hadn't done anything with the brandy bottle after you first saw it had been moved? No, I hadn't, and I did nothing with it that morning, just left everything as it was. I supposed that was the right thing to do. But I didn't get up my courage to call the police until after my stepfather had telephoned me and told me about finding Anne's body. I think it was about eleven o'clock that he called. And when you did call the police, what you got was Sergeant Rankin. Yes. When we get this one over with, we're done, aren't we, Cecil? Except for... except for... He turned up about twelve o'clock. You recall his testimony on the stand? Yes. It was accurate, except for what it left out and his denials to you in cross-examination. Before we go into that, do you want to tell your side of that thing about the aquarium, Callista? I might as well. It was a foolish impulse. I loved the things, and I had a picture of them going hungry and dying off with the apartment closed. If I'd stopped to think, I'd have known, of course, that Edith would take care of them for me. I can't look across the room at you right now, Edith. I don't dare. After all, she gave them to me herself. It was an impulse of despair, I think. 
You see, until Sergeant Rankin made it plain to me, I actually hadn't understood how things were going to look for me. I wasn't thinking clearly at all until then. What he said, and did, showed me how it would be, that I'd be accused of murder, and there'd be nothing to disprove it except my word. No tangible evidence in my favor. No one else with any first-hand knowledge of what happened. Naturally, as a police officer, Rankin saw that aspect of it right away. Well, the aquarium, I wanted the little tropicals to die quick and easy, that was all. I see. You said Rankin's testimony was accurate except for what it left out, and those denials. Will you fill in that blank? Just tell what Rankin did to the best of your recollection. When we were going back to the living room after I had shown him the brandy bottle, he grabbed hold of me from behind. I was still feeling sick and confused and startled by what he had said a minute before, something to the effect that no one would believe my story. I wasn't expecting any physical approach like that. I guess I was aware that he'd started to get excited, but I supposed that being a policeman he'd at least control himself. I said, take your hands off me, something like that, or stronger, I guess. Take your ugly hands off me, you fool. He didn't let go. He said he could give me a lot of breaks, as he put it, if I would put out. I tried to break free of him, but couldn't. A sort of stupid wrestling match across the living room. I couldn't get my wrist free. He forced me down on the couch. I tried to tell him then that I was ill, but it's possible he really didn't hear that. He was in a state of violent excitement, had opened his trousers and was trying to swing my legs up on the couch without letting go of my wrist. I told him the police department would smash him for it and he'd wind up in jail no matter what happened to me. He managed to say, The hell with that. Who's going to take your word against mine? I said that anyhow I could testify he was circumcised, and since he wasn't Jewish that ought to give my word a little weight. It got through to him and scared him. He gave me an open-handed slap across the face, just a nervous explosion, I guess, hardly knew what he was doing, and let go my wrist, stepped away from me across the room, got himself under control. When he turned back to me he was well behaved. He apologized, said there was something about me that made him lose his head. I think he spoke of having a wife and children and then something more about its being my word against his. I don't believe I was able to say anything except that I'd make him no promise about telling or not telling of it. He made his call to headquarters, and the aquarium thing was after that, I guess. Yes, it was. What he testified about just sitting there till the others came, that was true. I don't think he looked at me once after that remark I made, something about a spring morning warmed up in the oven. Yes, that seems to have made an impression on him. And yet, after all, Cecil, wouldn't we have done better to show Rankin as just one more creature caught in a drift of confusion, half ape, half civilized, like the rest of us? Or maybe we did succeed in doing that. I wouldn't know. LaSalle and Miss Wainwright look quite angry on my behalf. The face of the hogue expresses a certain disappointment. What'd he give up so easy for, and him a cop? The face of Fielding says, quite truthfully, that it hasn't a damn thing to do with the death of Ann Doherty. Well, Callista, I suppose Gage and the others arrived quite soon, as he testified. Do you want to add anything about that? No, I don't think of anything important. 
It was all about as Rankin told it, and then I was taken to Mr. Lamson's office. And questioned there. Do you happen to remember how long? I think from about two o'clock until seven in the evening when I signed that transcript. Callista, I will ask you, was there ever any genuine hostility between you and Ann Doherty? When two women want the same man, there's bound to be, Mr. Warner. As a person, if it were possible for me to think of her apart from Jimmy, I had nothing against her. It's true to say I hardly knew her. We had nothing in common. She was a sweet, harmless girl who never did the slightest thing to rouse any hostility in me. And I'll ask you, Callista, did you ever, at any time at all, entertain any sort of intention of doing away with her, or, in fact, of doing her any kind of harm? No, no, Mr. Warner. The worst I ever wished against her was that she would let Jimmy go. Callista, after signing that transcript in Mr. Lamson's office, did you receive medical attention? Oh, yes, I did. I sort of blacked out after signing it. Came to in some kind of infirmary room, in this building, I guess it is. The police doctor was all right. Do you recall seeing me that evening? Yes, you were there at the infirmary, soon after I came to myself. You remember my explanation of why I couldn't be there sooner? Yes, you told me you'd been out of town, and Edith couldn't get word to you until after six o'clock. Did you see your mother or your stepfather that day? No. They came, I understand, but weren't allowed to see me. So it adds up this way. Correct me if I'm wrong. You had a miscarriage about nine o'clock Sunday evening, we're in a state of partial or total collapse the greater part of the night. Then official questioning, briefly interrupted by attempted rape, from noon Monday until seven in the evening. Then medical attention. Do you think of anything you want to add at this time, Callista? No, I... There must be something. I am not ready. No, I don't think so, Mr. Warner. You may cross-examine, Mr. District Attorney. The hunter is coming forward. End of Part 7, Section 3 Recording by Roger Moline End of Part 7